Hello, my name is Dr. Jim Doty, and I'm the host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast, where we explore the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. Hi, welcome to the Into the Magic Shop podcast. Today, my guest is Colette Hosseini, a New York Times bestselling author of The Kite Runner, A Thousand Splendid Sons, and The Mountain's Echo. He's also the author of Sea Prayer, based on his work as an ambassador to United Nations High Commission on Refugees. This book is about the three-year-old child who was photographed dead on the beach in his attempt to escape from Syria. We're going to talk about Khalid's own experience as a refugee. We're going to talk about the books he's written. And we're also going to talk about the crisis in the Ukraine. So I hope you enjoy this podcast and thank you for listening. Well, welcome everyone. Uh, I'm uh, happy to be with you today. And my guest is uh, Khaled Hosseini, author of The Kite Runner, as well as uh, two other New York Times bestsellers, which I know almost every one of you is aware of. And uh, we're going to talk about a few things today, in part uh, his own backstory and also the refugee crisis, his thoughts on that, and maybe a few other things. We'll see. So thank you for being with me. And uh, Khaled, how are you today? I'm well. Thanks, Jim. Good to see you. Yes, it's uh, it's been a while, and we, we we should have lunch together one of these days. So before we get started, I know, of course, that uh, your father was a diplomat, and obviously uh, from a reasonably affluent family in Afghanistan, and that you immigrated here at the age of uh, 15. Maybe you can just tell us about what motivated that move, and also, once you got here, what your thoughts were when you thought back to leaving Afghanistan, and what were your experiences in that regard? Thanks, Jim. It's, it's nice to be on your podcast. Thanks for, for inviting me. I don't know how many people can point to a particular date and say, like, that was the inflection point in my life. But I actually can. Uh, it was December 27, 1979. And I actually remember, you correctly pointed out, my father was a diplomat for the Afghan Foreign Ministry. And he was stationed in Paris at the time, along with me and my siblings and my mother. And we were living in Paris. We were living in a, a little apartment. And we were hosting dinner with some friends. And suddenly there was a, a television was on. We had a little black and white television. And a, and a news uh, break came on. And it said that the Soviet Union had invaded Afghanistan. And we watched with some shock pictures of Soviet tanks rolling into Afghanistan. And what I remember about that is I, I, I looked at my dad and I looked at my mom and I saw this, this look pass between them. And in that sort of furtive glance between them, I realized that, that this was a momentous event for our private lives, meaning that we would probably not go back to Afghanistan and that our lives had spectacularly changed. And that turned out to be true. My father tried to convince his colleague who was working at the embassy not to return to Afghanistan. He did and was summarily executed. And so at that moment, it became clear that we cannot go back to our former lives, that the lives that my family had before. And we had some land in Afghanistan. We owned a couple of homes, uh, one in Western Afghanistan and in Kabul, that that life was over. And so my father worked with the Americans and convinced them that, uh, that his returning to Afghanistan would all but surely mean his demise 
and his family's demise. And so we were granted entry into uh, the United States in the fall of 1980. And me and my four other siblings and my grandmother and my aunt and my mother and my father, all nine of us, moved to San Jose, California in the fall of 1980, virtually with nothing by the suitcases of clothes and, uh, you know, hopes for an uncertain and a very vague future. And so we moved into San Jose in 1980. And it was, a, I think, a very difficult time for my folks in, in Afghanistan. They had established identities, they had careers, they had friends, they had families. They were always on the giving end of charity. But when we came to the United States, nobody knew who we were. There were no connections. We had, you know, a handful of Afghan families that uh, we met who would also come to the United States uh, because of the Soviet war. And it was a, a real reckoning with new identities and a new realities uh, for my family. And it was, I, I think, and still is to a large extent, a, a really transformative event in my life. How did your father or maybe your parents react? I mean, obviously, to come from being a diplomat to going to a place where you're an immigrant with nothing, was he able to find work or was it always a struggle for a period of time? Was it always challenging? I look back on that era now and I think my father was went through a period of clinical depression. And I remember him in the early 1980s really struggling with the change that our family had gone through. That said, I think my folks were blessed with a real sense of perspective because while, yes, we had lost everything and now we were on welfare and living in East San Jose in a, in a small little house with all nine of us, the reality was that, you know, as far as Afghans went, we were pretty lucky. I mean, millions of Afghans were fleeing war um, they were languishing in refugee camps in Pakistan. They were fleeing across the border into Iran. Many were dying in the, in the war that the Soviets were waging against Afghanistan. People were being maimed by landmines and being displaced, going hungry, going homeless. Uh, so they had that very healthy sense of perspective. And so I think, although for them, the loss of their past their traditions, their established lives, their careers was devastating. I see their move to the United States uh, largely as an act of sacrifice for myself and my four siblings, because it was made clear quite early on that, look, you, we are here. There is opportunity for here. We've, you know, we're in our 40s. We've more or less <laughs> lived our lives. But you need to now make something of yourself. It, 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 it sounds like this cliche immigrant story, but it really is true. And, it's, and it resonates. And it, it's something that so many people have gone through. And I remember it so vividly. My father setting us down and saying, your job is to get educated. Your job is to make this entire process meaningful and impactful. So I'll, I know it's a very, very powerful and transformative time in my life. And, I, and I'll always be grateful to my father, to my mother, for their backbone and for their strength, for their resilience. No, no, I think, uh, you know, in many ways, yours is sort of the immigrant success story, though. I mean, that you struggled, uh, you had to give up a past, which I'm sure you were attached to and your parents, and then to be thrown into this situation, you know, this may sound strange, but I always find it interesting because I take a lot of Ubers in my travel. 
and a large percentage of those people are immigrants. I mean, engineers, physicians, and you sit there and you go, oh my God, I, I mean, obviously there's certainly nothing wrong with uh, driving a taxi, but you see the talent that these people have and what they have to give up just to survive. And it, it's heartbreaking so often. And you know, of course, sadly, needless, because what do you get at the end of the day? You see the Russians in Afghanistan for, what, over 20 years, and they got nothing. I, I agree. You know, my and what you said about Uber drivers is true for my family. You know, my father became tragically tried to sell insurance for a while, which was <laughs> a terrible, terrible mismatch for the kind of person he was. He was the worst salesman of all time. Uh, but he became a driving instructor for years his main uh, drive was to get us off of welfare, which he did within months. It was a real blow to his self-image uh, to be uh, dependent on government aid. So he became a driving instructor, and I have very vivid memories of my father. And he specialized in, in helping um, physically challenged uh, folks. So he had this uh, the school given this van with all these um, levers and lifters and so on. So he would like drive to San Francisco and teach folks who were physically challenged um, how to drive. And then in a twist of, I guess, irony, which would, I think, never be allowed if you were to write fiction, my father Father became uh, my father became a AFDC and welfare dispenser to new immigrants working with the uh, with uh, with the county here in San Jose, and he ended up being on the giving end of government aid to uh, single mothers and newly arrived refugees and immigrants in the Bay Area, and he did that essentially until he retired and then died a year later. Well, I'm sorry about uh, his death, but it's interesting though because. I'm sure based on his own experience, he was a much more kind, gentler government person than many of the people who get those jobs. Because, you know, when you've lived through something like that, it makes you understand the pain, the suffering, you know, and in some ways the lack of dignity or how your dignity has been taken away from you, uh, you know, through these experiences. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, that's where compassion comes in. You know, he he really felt what these folks were going through. It had personal resonance for him. I mean, he knew their sense of loss. He knew what they had gone through. And so um, he had a, a personal understanding to some extent of their circumstances. And I think that it made him uniquely suited for that job. No, and I, I'm sure it made him happy. I, and, and I'm sure his job helping the disabled uh, made him happy because, you know, for many people, of course, when they're of service to others, it really is fulfilling. It gives meaning and purpose to one's life. So it's wonderful that he was able uh, to do that. To change the subject slightly, obviously, you did well in school, unlike myself. <laughs> oh, Jim, you've been fine. You've been fine. You're a neurosurgeon. You did great. And I know your story intimately. I've read your book. It's a wonderful book. And I'm, I know it's, 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 it's great. We, you're done well. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, in some ways, you, you mentioned that uh, you be going into medicine was an arranged marriage. Did you always want to be a writer and you sort of sublimated uh, that uh, desire to please your parents? Or did that desire come to you suddenly? Was there a seminal event or was it uh, it had sort of been growing, this need to express yourself? I always loved writing. It was my first love. There's a, a tiny little anecdote 
in The Kite Runner, where the main character writes a little short story for his friend, Hassan Amir does, and in which he writes a little story about a, a, a little cup and if drops fall into the cup and they turn into pearls. And I remember writing that story sometime around 1973, 1974, was eight or nine years old, and reading it to my father. And, you know, so I, I just, you know, growing up, I remember entertaining my friends, my cousins, my my siblings with storytelling. We would like, um, I would stage plays and I would write the, the play and they would act it out. It was my first love. But, you know, I didn't speak English when we came to the United States. I mean, I took some English in France, but my English was very, very poor. I knew a handful of words, a few expressions, very little. So the idea that I was going to somehow you know, make a living with words and you know, become successful and support myself uh, through words was was asinine. You know, it never crossed my mind. And to go back to the idea that my, in, in many ways, my, my trajectory in the United States is very typical and reflective of the immigrant experience, I had essentially the holy trifecta of choices. I could go into medicine, into law, or engineering. <laughs> so, I, I chose medicine. I chose medicine because there's always been in me this drive to help people, to engage with people. I'm a caretaker by nature to some extent, and I continue to be that in my late 50s. And so I chose medicine not because I had a deep calling for it, frankly, but I also felt like this real obligation and duty to make something of myself, to make my parents' sacrifice and their hardship, their experience meaningful, to have it like, you know, come to fruition in some way. And and so, yeah, it was not a purely personal decision. There was a lot of factors that went into considering my choice to go into medical school. And I remember my first day of medical school, I'm sure you remember yours, Jim. I, my first day of medical school, I was 160 kids in my class or something like that. And I, and I remember meeting a lot of my classmates and and they would say things like, oh, I, I, you know, I chose medicine because when I was a kid, my grandmother got sick. We went to the ER and the doctor sewed her up. And I was like, that's what I want to do. And I became very close friends with seven or eight guys who were from Iran and a couple of Palestinian guys. And for them, it was a different story. For them, it was like our parents moved to the United States. They escaped a lot of adversity. And we have a sense of duty. We want to make something of ourselves. And which is like a very classic, the first generation immigrant uh, a narrative. So that's a lot of ways went into medicine. So I, I have described as, a, as, as an arranged marriage. I, I wasn't in love with medicine, but I, I grew to really like practicing medicine over the years when I did practice it. it, it I never woke up in the morning and wondered, what am I doing with my life? I knew that I had great purpose. So it was a career that I, I grew to appreciate over the years. But, you know, my high school sweetheart was writing. That was what I really loved. And I, I just didn't have the gumption or even, frankly, the ambition to, to pursue it when I was younger. And in many ways, my writing career came about as an accident. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned sort of a sense of purpose. And one of the things I found is that people who've gone through significant adversity oftentimes become caregivers, whether it's a nurse, a physician. And from my own experience, I don't know if it was to assuage my own pain and suffering in the sense that I could care for others, or if it was a way to separate myself by helping others instead of dealing directly with my own pain. Mm, yeah, and I, I understand. I was 15 
when I came to the United States. I didn't know who I was. I didn't, you know, at 15, you, you're trying to figure out who you are. And medicine gave me direction. There's a terrible sense of uncertainty and instability when you abandon everything that is familiar to you and you're in a completely new environment surrounded by people you don't know, a language you don't know, a culture you're not familiar with. And so having that foundation of knowing like this is solid, People will always get sick. There will always be a need for this. And I will always be able to make something of myself. And I will always be able to be of service and have purpose in my life if I pursue medicine. You know, those are the thoughts that kind of went into my mind in my late teens as I thought about what I want to do with my life. Well, you know, I, I think that's exactly right also because I had friends, uh, you know, in their 30s who would, still didn't know what they wanted to do. And frankly, even... <laughs> Beyond that. And uh, so, you know, grabbing onto something that answers all the questions you were asking yourself, I think in some ways is a lot easier than trying to keep searching for something that gives you that feeling of meaning and purpose. Because, you know, as you were just saying, if you become a doctor, you're helping people, you have a guaranteed job, and, you know, it's a way to uh, support yourself your entire life. So I, I think that's very true. I pass that on to my kids. I always thought that when I'm old enough to have children and when I have children, they will pursue the thing that is in their heart. And I want to make sure that they have that freedom and that privilege and that opportunity. I want to make that happen for them, even if that's not true for me. Even if medicine is not my deep calling, it will allow me to provide that opportunity for my children. And, in, and indeed, they have done what they want to do. And, and, I'm, and I'm thrilled for that. No, no, I, I totally agree with you. And it, it's wonderful to be in that position where they don't have to worry. In my own case, at the time, I had a daughter. And there's a big difference, and I'm sure you experienced the same thing, between in some ways being on your own and you have no fallback in the sense that you don't have a parent who can, you know, whatever happens to you, just come up with the money or uh, deal with a situation where you're in need or hurt or something versus our children who they always know that no matter what happens, there's always somebody who can help them. And I think that's a huge psychological difference oftentimes, because on the one hand, you know, if you fail, there is no magical fallback versus somebody always coming to your rescue. And that's not to say your parents don't love you, but in my own circumstance, you know, if I couldn't pay tuition or couldn't get a loan, I have no one or had no one to turn to. And I think that is far, far different from this deep sense that, yes, you're on your own, but no matter what happens, there's always somebody who loves you, who has the resources uh, to help you. Yeah. See, Jim, you and I grew up without safety nets. Exactly. I think that's, that's exactly that's right. Line. Yeah. But that being said, it gives you great drive and persistence to make sure you don't need it. But I don't know if it's the most healthy <laughs> way to uh, learn that uh, type of drive and persistence. Another question for you. Obviously, you've written three New York Times bestsellers. Uh, you've had a movie made about your first book. And, uh, you know, the books always, uh, I mean, they're about friendships. They're about uh, relationships with your siblings, parent-child relationships, and really also the tragedies and circumstances that force people to make really very, very difficult life decisions and then with their associated consequences. What is it about these relationships? And from that, what is it that you're trying to 
share with the readers about those types of situations or sometimes the tragedies of the decisions people make? You know, family is really central to my life. When I grew up in Afghanistan, I can honestly say, I can maybe count on a on a hand the number of times I had dinner with just my parents. You know, it was a revolving door of an aunts and uncles and cousins. It was extremely rich social life. You defined yourself not as an individual, but as a member of a community. What we call downtime in the United States, which is you sit alone in a room and you just kind of breathe. Uh, that downtime in Afghanistan was quite the opposite. Uh, downtime was when you were with your cousins and your aunts and your uncles and your relatives and you were all together and you, you let your hair down as a collective. And so in my writing, you know, family and these interpersonal relationships is key in some ways. All my books, Kite Runner, Thousands of Planets, Sons, Mountains, I Got, even Sea Prayer, are family stories. It's about the relationship between people who share these intense experiences. And in my particular case, you know, I had a very happy childhood in Afghanistan. I was surrounded by people who knew me, who knew everything about me. And that was, you know, very comforting to me. And for my parents, when that world was lost, when the Soviets invaded Afghanistan, one of the things that I think was very traumatizing to my parents was that sense of belonging, that sense that they're understood, that sense that there are people in their community who know who they are, who know their ancestry, who know their background, who can point to them and say, I knew who your uncle's second cousin was. That may seem funny to us now, but genealogy is a national pastime in Afghanistan. And it's meaningful. You know, those relationships are, are very meaningful. So my books are, are filled with those relationships between generations, between parents and children and their extended families. Uh, and so those, those stories are very meaningful to me. And no matter what I do, when I sit eventually in some way, my writing always gravitates towards those relationships and those dynamics. You know, it's interesting you bring that up because, uh, as you well know, there's an epidemic of, uh, of mental health issues, stress, anxiety, depression in the United States, which uh, predated the pandemic and, of course, has been uh, dramatically worsened. But when you look at these places in the world called blue zones, which are areas in the world where people routinely live to 100, a lot of people attribute this to diet. And on some level, that's true. And you've probably seen there are a million Mediterranean diet cookbooks. But uh, if you look at actually the numbers, the most important thing is deep personal relationships, deep uh, social connections. And by far and away, uh, even exponentially, that is much, much more important. And it's interesting how you phrase that, where you're able to let your hair down. And I tell people that, when you're born into a community, you live there essentially your whole life, everyone knows who you are. And that means the good part and the bad part, and they still love you. And I think this idea of this sense of caring, security, knowing that you can be who you are without fear of judgment. And that's not to say that you're not punished if you're bad, but it means to say that in the face of all the things that happen, people still love you, care for you, watch out for you. And that's extraordinarily comforting and, and, and is why people live routinely, because that actually is the antidote for many, many diseases, because fundamentally a lot of them are associated with chronic stress and anxiety. You know, there's a study that uh, was done at Harvard, which is somewhat misogynist because it's all about men, 
But they followed this group of graduates, uh, I think almost heading towards 80 years. And again, the fundamental thing that has allowed their longevity is deep personal connections and the ability to be authentic versus uh, hiding who you are. You know, in the U.S., you take a job, you you not necessarily have access or living near your your family. You don't have deep relationships. And uh, many people are not able to be authentic and show their true selves. We're pack animals. Um, We're social animals. We understand ourselves in the context of how we fit into a larger collective. That is something that, as you correctly pointed out, we do struggle in the United States with. People never went into nursing homes in Afghanistan. There were no nursing homes in Afghanistan. You know, you were never expected to leave your family. They were there for you to support you. They were there for to, to nurture you, to take care of you. And yes, it was a third world country. Yes, we didn't have many of the amenities and privileges that people enjoy in the West. But the richness of that social life, it's very hard to put a dollar value on that. One of the things I find very sad is you look at countries which have very rich spiritual and religious traditions that are actually third world countries, and you see people sacrifice everything to come to America where their God becomes conspicuous consumption and the acquisition of things, and they walk away from these very rich, deep traditions thinking that somehow coming here uh, offers them something better. Yeah, yeah, I agree. You know, one of the challenges is, I think, uh, as immigrants, is to try to maintain that sense and pass on the richness of that tradition, the, the meaning of those connections to your children, because they're essentially born in this country. They're inundated by you know, American culture, by Western sensitivities uh, and sensibilities. And uh, you can lose that far more quickly than you think. And so it takes actual work to make sure that you you raise your children. And I have tried to do that with my children and and get them to appreciate that that they're not just individuals, that their individual dreams, ambitions, and hopes matter deeply, but that they should never see themselves as an isolated individuals, but rather really as part of a collective. Actually, I just wanted to mention Sea Prayer because I found that, uh, and thank you for giving me, I think you gave me one of the first books you had received, which I, I very much appreciate. And, and it was actually extraordinarily moving for me. And I, I, that photograph of that Syrian child dead on the beach has remained with me. How has this refugee crisis, and of course, we're seeing what's, again, you mentioned the Russians invading Afghanistan for a never-ending war, if you will. Now we're seeing uh, the Russians now invade Ukraine. We're seeing or hearing of horrible stories of civilians injured, and I think it's now three million people trying to leave or refugees and uh, the worldwide impact of that. What is the solution? And I, I, I don't mean to give you this unanswerable question, but First of all, do you see a solution? I don't mean that in any way, not understanding the realities of the world, but how do we help in these situations? And so many people, so many people listening to this podcast, you know, feel this deep, deep despair and pain of watching these people suffer. Do you have any answers or what are your thoughts on that? On Ukraine specifically? Yeah. And refugees in general, of course. Yeah, um, I believe in the power of storytelling. 
um, Jim. I think stories, um, be they in the form of plays or films or music, or I happen to be deeply partial to literature. I think they're the single best means we have of feeling empathy for others. You know, we are, as you well know, Jim, a species wired for metaphor. In order for some kind of a, a meaningful internal shift to happen with us with regard to any particular subject, in this case, refugees, we have to be invited into the lives of others and experience something that catches with us, something that moves us, something that angers us, something that outrages us and maybe spurs us to action. You hear three million Ukrainian refugees in a matter of three weeks. You hear of the thousands who've perished at sea in the, Mediter in the Eastern Mediterranean trying to reach Europe. And those statistics, those numbers are, are necessary. They're important because they help us uh, get a scale of what a crisis is, but they don't move the needle because we're a species that you, you, you brought up sea prayer and, and uh, that little Syrian boy, Alan Kurdi. You know, we're gutted uh, by a single picture, by a single story, and it prompts us to action. And yet somehow... The mass suffering, human suffering on, on a much larger scale, we tend to receive as an abstraction, uh, you know. And the Alan Kurdi story, uh, the, the story of this little Syrian boy lying face down dead on a beach is a tragic illustration of that. You know, people saw that picture and the story it told was of an innocent life wasted, of a family uh, in despair, of a country in turmoil and the indifference of the world. You know, after that picture was shot in September of 2015, donations to relief agencies that help refugees went through the roof and searches in the internet on refugees uh, <laughs> went through the roof. And so I'm not trying to say that storytelling is enough. I'm not trying to say that that, that alone moves the needle, but it's indispensable because of this, just how, you know, as a neurosurgeon, you probably know this better than I do. This is how we're wired. So I think that at the end of the day, I'm a realist. We need policy change. We need actions on the part of governments, but it has to begin with us feeling something, with us understanding something about the plights of other human beings. And in my writing, in my work, I think if I were to say the principal thing I've done is try to put a human face and a human dimension to what could be otherwise a series of statistics and numbers of faceless, nameless people in headlines. And that to me is a tragedy. When you hear three million Ukrainians have crossed the border, every single one of those three million is a person with a universe of experience and insight and emotions and thoughts and feelings, every single last one of them. And it's very important to not fall into uh, the trap of thinking in terms of numbers, but in thinking, remembering that these are human beings, that these are people with thoughts and feelings and ambitions and hopes and dreams just as real and just as legitimate as our own. No, I think that's uh, an excellent point. And, you know, it's interesting because a number of studies have shown that, unfortunately, human beings are overwhelmed by suffering when you see masses of individuals, yet can completely relate 
to the plight of one person. And I think those types of narratives that highlight the lives of or deaths of uh, an individual in these types of circumstances are really ones that move people uh, to action. And I think that's really quite profound. I was going to say it's one of the things I think that people don't realize is in some ways their own agency. And what I mean by that is oftentimes people will say, well, I don't have the means, I don't have the power, I don't have the financial resources to be able to do anything. But while we're talking about refugees, fundamentally, we're talking about suffering. And I would simply suggest that every day, each of us, no matter our circumstances, has the ability to make at least one person's life better. And I think that's what each of us really should be reminded about. You know, it's even interesting here in the United States where many people look up to us in some ways, or at least uh, they did. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't think we need to comment any further. (laughs) We're heading into a different podcast. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. We won't go there at the moment. But my point is that, you know, there's deep suffering in the United States. I'm sure uh, not far from you and not far from me. We have people who are homeless. We have people who are hungry. We have children in poverty. And I think that if we can just understand the suffering that these people go through, and sometimes it's simply uh, smiling at somebody, sometimes it's giving someone a hug, sometimes it's feeding somebody, but each and every one of us uh, has that capacity to improve the life of another person. And I think maybe that's where we can end our podcast, although I would like uh, to ask you what your uh, final thoughts are. Um. Look, Jim, uh, you know, thanks for having me. This is a, a podcast on compassion. So um, I'll, I'll just um, finish by saying that for me personally, you know, the words sympathy, empathy, compassion are very frequently in the dialogue with other folks are very, very much jumbled. And for me, there is a, a real difference. And, and, and that difference has really affected my life. You know, sympathy is feeling for a person. You know, you walk down the Tenderloin in San Francisco, you see a destitute guy on the side of the street and you kind of feel for him. You say, well, that must be terrible. You know, that's awful. Empathy to me is a, is a step further. It's actually understanding what it's like to not have a home, to be cold, to be hungry, and to actually feel in that, that person's feelings of, of isolation and, and alienation. And what was has really brought meaning to my life is is coupling that sense of empathy, which I've always had for refugees, be they from Afghanistan, be they from South Sudan, Iraq, Syria, now Ukraine, and coupling it with this impulse to want to step in and do something. And I think, you know, you can speak about this for hours and uh, this is your forte. But to me, that's what compassion is, is coupling that sense of empathy with with the impulse to want to help. And I'm, I'm so grateful to have been able to through my work with UNHCR, through my foundation, and in my own limited way to find a viable channel to address that impulse and put it into action. Lastly, the only thing I will say to all your listeners is to please give. Please give to relief organizations that are on the ground in Afghanistan and in Ukraine. In our social media news cycle, we tend to focus on a crisis at a time and then forget about the last one. Currently, it's Ukraine. 
rightfully it should be. So please give to those relief organizations that are on the ground in Ukraine, including UNHCR that's delivering life-saving, vital services to people both inside Ukraine and outside, organizations like UNICEF, MSF, Save the Children. Every little dollar helps. But also remember that just because the cameras aren't in Afghanistan anymore, that crisis isn't over. Millions of people in Afghanistan live with food insecurity. Millions and millions of people don't know where their next meal is going to come from. Two million children are suffering from acute malnourishment. So please don't forget, just because the cameras aren't in Afghanistan anymore, that there's a looming humanitarian catastrophe in Afghanistan. So please donate to those relief organizations that are on the ground in Afghanistan and making a difference in the lives of, of, of people in that country. Well, Khalid, thank you so much for spending a little bit of your time with me. I appreciate it. Also, hopefully we'll have a chance to uh, get together maybe for uh, lunch or dinner uh, one of these days in the not-too-distant future. So thanks again. Again, thank you for being with us today. The Into the Magic Shop podcast can be found where you find your most popular podcasts, or you can find us at intothemagicshop.com. Dot com.